There was once an old geezer, and I'm not, don't point at anybody when I say the word geezer. Uh, there was once an old geezer who had been a retired farmer for a number of years, and he was getting bored in his retirement. And so he decided to open up a medical clinic. And so he put out a sign out front of his house, in front of his office, says, get your treatment for $500. If not cured, uh, I'll give you back 1000 So that was a good deal. And so there was a young doctor in town who was positive that this old geezer didn't know beans about medicine. And so we thought this would be a great opportunity to teach him a lesson, plus get $1,000 for myself. And so we went to Dr. Geezer's clinic, and this is what happened. Dr. Young uh, said this, Dr. Geezer, I have lost all my taste buds in my mouth. Can you please help me? Well, Dr. Geezer said to his nurse's assistant, Nurse, please bring medicine from box 22 and put three drops in Dr. Young's mouth. And so the nurse went to box 22 and got the, the, um, the vial of, uh, and put three drops on Dr. Young's mouth, to which he burst into, Ah, that's gasoline! Well, congratulations, Dr. Geezer said. You've got your taste buds back. That'll be $500, please. Well, Dr by this and so he thought for a few days and went back and figured he'd try to recover his money and so doc he said dr young said i've lost my memory i can't remember anything and so dr geezer says nurse uh, please bring medicine from box 22 and put three drops in patient's mouth and well dr geezer says congratulations you've got your memory back that will be five hundred dollars well, Dr. Young, already having lost a thousand bucks, left the office angry, and he came back a few days later with one more attempt. Dr. Young said, my eyesight has become weak. I can hardly see anymore. And Dr. Geezer said, well, I don't have any medicine for that, so here's your thousand dollars back. And he put it into his hand, his stack of bills, and, and, and Dr. Young looked and counted them. He said, but that's only five hundred dollars. Dr. Geezer said, congratulations, you have your vision back. That will be five hundred dollars. And so, we can go on with that. We're all, but you get the point, right? Um, Dr. Geezer's approach to fixing things, life's ills, probably isn't right on many levels. But he does raise the interesting question of how do we address the things that aren't right in our lives and in the world. I hope I don't have to convince you very much that things in our little world, in my little world, in my little life, in the big world in which we live, aren't quite what they should or could be. Uh, the promised solutions to those problems are a dime a dozen. They are everywhere around us. But over the next several weeks and months, um, leading up to Christmas time, actually, um, we're going to look at God's answer to what's wrong and what's broken in my life, in my little world, and in the big world around us. And what we are going to look at is it's a beautiful present, and beautifully presented as well, to us in a way that reminds us that God... Um, has a solution, and that God has been a part of the problem the whole time, and that he is working us towards a solution that is glorious. And that solution is summarized beautifully in the little book of Ephesians in your New Testament. And so over the next couple of three months here, we're going to walk our way through this book in a way that I hope will encourage us and help us um, in many ways. And uh, it, the book begins, as many of your books in your New Testament do, with these simple words. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this, Paul 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're going to read everything that follows, but I just want to pause and ask those good journalistic questions of, of who, how, why, when, whatever, all those questions that, uh, that are relevant so who writes this letter? It was Paul. Paul identifies himself. It's, it's about the year 62 AD. Um, it's a hard time to be a Christian. In fact, Paul himself, as he writes this letter, if you keep reading, is, is under some kind of arrest. Uh, Paul was in prison twice and near the end of his life. The one time was more of a house arrest kind of thing. The second time was more uh, sticky in the dungeon because we're going to kill you kind of arrest. And this is probably the first um, house arrest thing, but, but still he's uh, being under house arrest can get old after a while. Uh, he is trapped there, can't leave for a man who, who dreams of spreading Christianity throughout the entire European continent. Uh, being stuck for a year or two under house arrest has not been fun for him. Um, if you read the book of uh, the chapter, Acts chapter 19, the book of Acts, what you find is that Paul had come to the city of Ephesus. Uh, I believe there's a map that maybe I can show you that shows you where Ephesus is um, in co correlation to Rome and Jerusalem and all those kind of places. Um, Paul had come to Ephesus on one of his missionary journeys, and a lot of times he would come, spend a few months there, and move to the next place. But in Ephesus, because of the strategic city that it was, because of its strategic place for all of Asia Minor, he spent three years there. And he planted a church there. Uh, he sent out others who would plant churches around that area. In fact, when you get to the end of your Bible, in Revelation 2 and 3, um, there's that list of seven churches that just are scattered around that area, around Ephesus. And a lot of people think all of those churches were churches that were planted when Paul came to Ephesus and the gospel just continued to spread from the hub of Ephesus out to all the more rural areas around. And so Paul had done an amazing work, and God had done an amazing work through Paul, we should say, um, in his time in Ephesus. But Paul had moved on, and now he finds himself um, imprisoned because of his faith, because of a world that didn't like his Jesus in a lot of ways. Some of that was religious people. Some of that were just the Gentiles around. If you read Acts 19, again, you find by the time that Paul is, is kind of finishing his ministry there, um, there's a riot that breaks out because Christianity, just this whole belief in Jesus, took off so quickly and made such a big difference that it began to affect people's pocketbooks and business people people didn't like it. It began to affect the Jewish community and the Jewish people didn't like it. There's a lot of people who did not like this new Jesus and so they couldn't get to Jesus and so they took it out on the closest thing to them which is Paul and all of his new disciples. And so it wasn't a comfortable time to be a Christian, to be one of these new Jesus followers to the world. And so Paul writes to them and I think in a way that, that is helpful to us, because I don't know if you've noticed or not, but it's becoming less and less popular to be known as a follower of Jesus. Less and less people appreciate that trait in you if you are one of those. Um, and I hope that trend will continue. Um, and so I think it's important for us, like Paul does for his people that he loved, for us to go back and read this letter again. Because what Paul is trying to do, if you go to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, Paul kind of summarizes the book and everything he's going to say in these simple words. He says this, praise be uh, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
He's writing to a group of people who don't feel very blessed, who maybe in their daily lives are struggling, and there's pressure, and there's maybe some persecution, there are some outside challenges, there's all kinds of things that's making it hard and distracting to be a, just an everyday follower of Jesus. And so Paul writes this letter in this beautiful way. All six chapters he writes are simply a reflection. The first three are about, don't forget who this Jesus is and all the things that Jesus has done for us. And he sets, up this, sets us up on this beautiful platform. And then verses chapters four through six, he, he just unpacks. And if this is who Jesus is, then this is what this new kingdom community ought to look like at the end of the second half of the letter. And so as we walk our way through that, what we're going to find is that there is nothing beyond the scope of Christ's love, of his concern, of his involvement in our life. And and, and his work in our life is complete. There's not a place, there's not a nook or cranny within us or around us he doesn't care about or want to be a part of. And so Paul writes to remind these struggling people for various reasons that even though it may not feel like they're very blessed, they have the best seat of blessing in the entire universe. And I use the word universe intentionally because Ephesians talks about the grandeur of what God is doing through Christ at a cosmic level, not just here in a few communities, not just in a country, but globally and even cosmically. That Jesus is elevated to such a high standard in Paul's letter as he reflects upon what it means for Christ to have come, to have died, to have resurrected, and now to have ascended where he sits at the hev- in heaven at the Father's right hand. And so Paul writes to encourage them because it's easy when life gets difficult, when life is challenging, it's easy for us to get distracted and to gain, uh, to build up a little case of spiritual amnesia. Uh, inside of us that can say, I, I forget how blessed I am to know Jesus and to have a chance to follow Jesus. And so Paul writes in a way, I think, to remind them in um Unlock Dr. Geezer, who had just uh, gimmicks, Paul has a real solution, and yet he calls them back to remember who they are, what they have, and that little phrase you see throughout this book called, In Christ. And so uh, what I want to do is I just want to diagnose the amnesia and where that comes from. There's a parable that Jesus tells that every time I read a letter like this, that, like why was there such, if they knew Jesus, if they'd come to know Jesus, why were they, uh, why were they losing sight of that? How, what was happening in their life that, that just made them lose sight of how beautiful Christ was, how powerful Christ is, how good it was to be in Christ? And there's a, one of my favorite passages in the Bible that every time I read it, it always makes, helps me to make some sense out of some of the things going on in my life. And it's the parable that Jesus told about the sower and the seed in Matthew 13. It's one of those stories that I read it, and if you remember the story, Jesus tells a story about a guy who, who's a farmer, and he goes out and he's planting seed, and he's just throwing seed out uh, into the various places as he walks through his field. Some of it falls on a hard path. Some of it falls in rocky soil. Some of it falls in thorny soil. And some of it falls in really good, ready-to-grow ready to soil. And so Jesus tells the parable, and his disciples come to him later and say, Jesus, unpack that for us. What does that mean? And in Matthew 13, verses 18 and 19, Jesus begins to talk about, um, I think, diagnosing some of the places why spiritual amnesia, why we forget uh, Jesus so easily and quickly sometimes in our life, uh, in, in the face of all the things that just daily life brings to us. Listen to what he says. Verse 18 says, Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one. Note that there's an enemy who's always at work. And if our hearts are hard, and we all meet people who, who just, they're just not 
interested in spiritual things. Their hearts are very hard for whatever reason. And Satan is glad to come along and cooperate with that and pluck that gospel seed away and, and snatches it away and their heart is, no, is not changed. There's no growth there. And so we interact with people sometimes. And some, sometimes our, our amnesia is just from a hard heart. He goes on to diagnose the second one, that the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. All right, it, it looks good, and, and, but there's underneath the, the nice soil on top is a, it's a hard layer of rock. And so it grows quickly. There's joy at the beginning, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. And note the words that sometimes drive us towards amnesia or forgetting the Lord when troubles come or persecutions come, right? Life gets hard. Um, health deteriorates. You, 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 the bills pile up. Um, all kinds of trouble comes relationally. Just life gets hard. Or persecution comes. Pressure from the outside. And, and all of those things can kind of squelch. If I don't have that deep soil, it can squelch what God is trying to do through and in my life through Christ. And so that's one of the things. And he goes on to say this in verse 22 of, a, of, the, of the thorns, uh, of the thorny soil. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but then know what happens to them. That the worries of this life, and the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, making it unfruitful. You ever find yourself distracted from God because you're so worried about something or some situation or something that you're just carrying this burden and, and you're treating Jesus like he's this big and your problems are this big and that, that worry of life is just overwhelming you. And it's easy to allow Jesus to kind of fade to a background of our minds because, boy, these problems, these worries that I'm having, they're just so big. And instead of reversing that with a big Jesus and little worries, um, but the worries of life can certainly choke out the seed and cause us to forget him. Or the deceitfulness of wealth that we're just so consumed with the next pleasure, with the next thing, thinking all this material stuff that I can get and I can accumulate and have, that somehow it's going to calm my soul or soothe my soul or, or make me feel whole on the inside. And so all of those things can produce within us a, a sense of amnesia that I forget about this good thing that Jesus is. And I'm susceptible to it. You are. And so, but Jesus doesn't leave it that way. He also talks about the soil that is well prepared in verse 23. But he said, the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. And this is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. And as Paul I think as he's writing the book of Ephesians and sends it out to Christians in Ephesus and other churches around that area to encourage them. I think this is what he's really trying to recreate. He's trying to break through some hard soil, trying to get through some rocky places and some thorny things and clarify once again, this is why when you first made a step towards Jesus, this is why you did it because of who Jesus is and what he's done and the value that he is. And it's, it's, I don't think it's an accident that's just a few verses after this that Jesus tells a parable that talks about the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that when you find it, you go sell, ever, sell everything you have so you can come by and buy the field and have the treasure. And so Paul, in a lot of ways, is reminding these Christians of the treasure that they have in Jesus. And so some of you have been Christians for a long time. And I'm guessing that your brains, your mind, your, your heart has become dull to Jesus because of the worries of life or the pleasures of life or the pursuit of life or there's trouble or maybe people are giving you a hard time for it and the heart can begin to get a little dull and you kind of pull back 
And I think Ephesians is written for us in a way that reminds us why we should never fall back because what we have in Jesus is so rich, is so good, it is so, such a place of blessing. And so over these next few weeks, I hope to remind you of that. And I think that will happen for us as we read through this uh, section by section and talk a little about it. But it will happen especially for those of you who, uh, who do what Paul does in this letter. Because twice in this letter to the Ephesians, he prays for them in, in longer ways. He says a little things, he talks about prayer. But twice in this letter, he prays certain prayers for them. And I think the two prayers is what I would ask for you to be prayerful over your own heart. That God, as we read through this, as I read this story, this, this letter that Paul has written, two things that I'm going to ask you to pray for you uh, personally, uh, about as I pray for my own heart as we walk through this. The first one is this. God would, uh, it's, it's a prayer that he prays in chapter one, a prayer for open eyes. God, would you open my eyes to see the reality of who Jesus is and what he offers me in my life and what he's calling me to. Would you please open my eyes? Because it's easy for us to become blinded, just like, our, just like Jesus talked about. Our, our, our eyes can become blinded to the truth and the beauty and the supremacy and all the awesomeness that Jesus is. And it's easy over time for that to happen. This is what Paul prays. I pray that the eyes of your hearts, not your physical eyes, but the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. Now we'll get to unpacking that in a few weeks, but just focus on those first few phrases there. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And again, this is on the heels of going through this big, long section where he just unpacks blessing after blessing after blessing of what God has done for us through Christ. It's, all, it's available to all of us. He says, you've got to pray that God opens the eyes of your hearts. You're going to miss this. It won't have the great impact it, has, it could have on you. He goes on in verse 19 to say, That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him as head over everything. If you just go through and to underline the word every and all, you're going to find four or five times that in this section, Paul is just saying, man, if I could open your eyes to show you who Jesus is, that he is over all, there's nothing hidden from him, there's nothing beyond him. And so we've chosen as a title for this sermon series, Nooks and Crannies. Um, because what are nooks and crannies? It's those hidden places of life, right? You walk around your house and you probably have some nooks and crannies. You don't go there. You don't look there. You don't clean there. You just stick things from 1970 there and you leave it there and you never look at that. Those hidden places. And that's true in our world, right? There are nooks and crannies. There are hidden places all over the world where we think, well, well, God's at church, Christ is at church, but would he care about that? In those broken places or those hard places or those distant places? And it's easy for us to begin to think, well, there's just a small little window in which little Jesus comes and he loves and he serves and he helps, but what about the rest? I think you read a passage like that and you can't help but think that in Paul's language, in Paul's mind, there's not an inch of dirt on this earth that Christ isn't over. There's not an inch of thing in this cosmos that Christ doesn't rule over and reign over. And, and he's trying to open our eyes to see the bigness of Christ and what that looks like and the difference that that makes in our life. And so we pray that God would open our eyes. And, and you can just jot these down. We're not going to camp on any of these very long. 
Um, just three things, I think, as I go through this book, um, this letter, that just God opened my eyes to see, number one, the beauty and the supremacy of Christ. I think as you, if you were just to sit down and I would encourage you, maybe even every day or every other day, sit down and just read through this letter in its entirety. And I think you're going to be struck by the beauty and the supremacy of Christ. You're going to find someone who, that in chapter 1, we're told in Christ we are chosen, we are adopted, we have been redeemed by his blood, we are united together with God under heaven and under Christ, we are included in all that God is doing in Christ, everything is under his feet in Christ. Chapter 2, we're made alive in him with Christ, we are raised up and seated in a heavenly place in him, we were once far away from God but now we're brought near, he is our peace, our dividing wall when we have relational conflicts and the, and the division that fills our world, he's the chief corner stone which everything is built upon. We are loved deeply. He can do more than we can ask or imagine in chapter 3. Chapter 4, he gives gifts to his body to, to, to serve us and to bless us um, that we can serve others with. He gives us new life to pursue. He, he, we forgive one another because he forgave us. Chapter 5, we walk in the way of love that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. He loved us deeply, committedly, sacrificially, and transformationally. Let me just read you this from chapter 5, verse uh, 25 and down to 27. Just listen to these. They're not on the screen, but just listen to the beauty and the supremacy of who Christ is. When it just talks about how he addresses us and deals with us as his church. Husbands, love your wives. But do it just as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her to make her holy and cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. Just feel the, the commitment, feel the passion, feel the, the sacrifice of, of, of that love. There's beauty. You get this beautiful picture of a supreme Jesus who doesn't just sit in heaven, but is committed to his people, who's committed to you. And so I hope that as we walk through this letter, you will feel and you will sense and you will live from the beauty and the supremacy of Christ. Number two, let me jot this down. Um, notice our brokenness and our need for Christ. On the one hand, you've got Paul talking about everything that is so beautiful and glorious about Jesus. In the flip side, he keeps coming back to these struggles that lie in each one of our hearts and each one of our lives, the struggles to be, um, to be better, see more than we are, the struggles to find who we are and what it means to, to even be human. You see, life can be hard on us. A few weeks ago, many of you sent kids back to school, and, and I enjoyed watching pictures of those um, on the internets. And so, um, but there was a, one of my favorite ones. You've probably seen some of this. But there was a young lady that went to school, and this was her going to school the first day picture. And she's all dolled up, and she's beautiful. And then I love the mom took a picture of her on the way home, and this is what she looked like. That man, that's that's real, right? That's life. Because you think, okay, I'm all put together, I'm all fine, but at the end of the day, what are we? I'm a mess, right? The day beat me up, my hair's disheveled, I just look like I've been run over by a truck, and life is hard, right? Interacting with people, uh, trying to, to just make it through the day, it just reminds me as I read this book of the lofty things, the lofty person that Jesus is, how below that I am. And I'm broken. In light of his holiness and his perfect love that we just read about and, and all the things he does to show his commitment and his love for me, I realize how broken I am. 
and how far, how fall, far, how far I fall from. Be careful with that. How fall, how, how far I fall from all that He is um, for me and for you. And, and so I realize my brokenness, and and that leaves me with a choice. In my brokenness, I can either walk away from Him, saying I can never be, I can never have that, I can never have those spiritual blessings in Christ. But Ephesians isn't written to make you feel like, oh, you don't, you're not good enough. Ephesians is written to say, you know what, you're not good enough, but you need Jesus because he is enough and he can surround you with everything that you need. And so uh, just we see our brokenness and our need for Christ. And thirdly, I think there's this, the broad reach and deep concern of Christ for every one of us. And not just for us, but for every single person that you meet throughout your day. Again, nooks and crannies. Um, sometimes we think, well, God could never love them. God could never change them. Or we think of ourselves, God could never change me. I've been wrestling with this for years. And, but I think Ephesians just reminds us that there's not a thing that is beyond the reach and the scope and the love and the concern and the pursuit of Jesus Christ. And so as you walk through this book, what you find is that Paul says that Christ rules over and, and is there and cares about, reaches into people in the first chapter who are struggling with feeling their worth. You ever feel like you're not much worth much in this world? Ah, boy, this first paragraph, Paul just drives home the point that in Christ, not by yourself, but in Christ, you are adopted, chosen, loved, forgiven, sealed. Just the list of things, descriptive terms he uses. You can't help but think that he's trying to drive home a point to a people who don't feel very worthwhile or feel worth much at all. You're worth everything in Christ. What a blessing. And the people at the end of the chapter, they're wrestling with fear and the weakness in their life and there's persecution and troubles all around them and sometimes we can just feel so afraid and so weak in the face of the world. So where does the power come from to be different, to stand up? comes from in Christ. Or you go into chapter 2, people wrestling deep down with guilt and shame. Or the divided relationships that just we just wrestle with on a regular basis. And yet, Paul, through Christ, presents this beautiful image of, of guilt and shame, being, of the dead heart being brought back to life, and, and the divided hearts being made one again. It talks about just how sometimes pain in chapter 3, pain is such a dangerous thing and a hard thing because we can hurt so bad like Paul did. He's in jail, but yet that's not his approach. Is that, oh man, life hurts and life stinks and I wish it was better. His approach was, yes, life is hard, but God is with me. There's another in the fire, as we sang earlier, who was with me and through my pain, through my imprisonment, the gospel's going places it never would have gone otherwise. God wins even though my life is hard. It's okay because he's with me. It goes on in that chapter to talk about thou hearts that, that are hungry for love. In that beautiful passage, we're going to read it in just a second to finish with. It's just that God, you would help us to understand and appreciate the incredible love. That there's not a day that goes by that you may not feel lovable, you may not feel loved from other people, but there's not a day that goes by that you are not loved by Jesus Christ. Or, or people wrestling with purpose and strength and all kinds of things. And she gets in chapters four or five, our character flaws and our struggles in our marriages to make them work and our struggles in our homes to be parents and to be good kids and, and just to struggle in the workplace, just finding meaning and purpose there. Or, or even just standing up to the evil that seems so strong around us. Like, how do I stand firm in that? All of those things, as you see, as Paul presents them, 
that life in Jesus, in Christ, we can't help but notice the broad reach and the deep, deep concern that Christ has for all of those things. And so I hope that your prayer would be, God, as we walk through this, open my eyes to see the potential. Help me to see a grander vision, a kingdom vision for what my life can be in you and what maybe even my world can be in you. And so God, open my eyes, and, and I finished with this last one. God, not only would you open my eyes, but would you fill my heart? That's the second prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians and such a beautiful passage in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. And he says that I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, being tied into that love, the love of Christ, and out of that you're going to find power, that together with all the Lord's holy people, and that's going to help you to grasp how high and, oh, excuse me, how wide and how long and how high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses all knowledge. And so I think as, as I've gone through this the last few weeks and tried to think and process this for myself, um, it's helpful for me because sometimes the days can be frustrating, things come along, you feel overwhelmed by some stuff in life, you think, man, God, help me to have eyes that are open to see the greatness and the supremacy of Christ. Let me see how deep and passionately he cares, he loves but God, it's great to have great head knowledge, to know these truths about who Jesus is, but it's got to go deeper. It's got to fill my heart with your love. To know that no matter what happens in this life, no matter how well or how poorly I do today, no matter what happens to me from the outside, God, fill me with that love, the love of Christ that is so deep and so long and so wide and so high. And so I would just ask for you to do a couple of things here. One, uh, just spend some time over the next week reading through this letter. Uh, if you sit down, you can do it in probably 20 minutes. Um, but just read through this letter together from beginning to end. Uh, and just hear it, feel it, let it speak to us and prepare your heart and your minds so that we come to it. It'll mean more to you. Second of all, pray those prayers. God, open my eyes, fill my heart. Open my eyes, fill my heart through what Ephesians is going to teach us. Um, I think it can change us in so many cool ways. Um, and um, next week we'll have a devotional for you. Other things that you can plug into that, that hopefully will help to make it personal besides what we talk about here. Um, but just, again, if you begin to read it, begin to pray it, God, open my eyes and fill my heart. I think it's already going to start doing a good work in your life. And so uh, that's my prayer for me. It's my prayer for you as these next couple months as we walk through this, that, that my eyes will be more open to see who Jesus is, a greater, deeper appreciation for his beauty, for his majesty, for his love, for his concern, for his involvement in my life and that he would fill my heart with his love that can just overflow to other people.